Okay, so we begin the uh, Vimalakirti Sutra first meeting. We uh, we have an idea of concluding this in uh, within three meetings, but uh, I doubt that. I doubt that this will happen. So we probably, most likely, would have to uh, set up another time to meet. Okay, and even with that, uh, we are going to go through some parts of the sutra. Um, and talk about it, and um, I would ask that whatever we don't read, I would ask you to, to make sure that you read and you look into, and then we can bring it up too in one-on-one -on -one discussions. Uh, there's a lot there, it's very rich. So whatever we don't cover <coughs> within this uh, way of talking about it, please read on your own. So, uh, this sutra, um, Vimalakirti. By the way, Vimalakirti means unstained glory. That's the meaning of the name. This sutra is very important to, to the Zen tradition uh, for different reasons. And uh, you will see as we kind of unpack it together. But um, it is the reconciliation of dualities, or all dichotomies, right? which is obviously very important in Zen practice. Also directly pointing to the mind, directly pointing to the source. Right? And that's also uh, back to uh, Bodhidharma's teaching. Right? You can sum it up as teaching that transcends words and scriptures, uh, transcends all dualities, and points directly to the source. Um, also freedom of expression and authenticity, which you see over and over again with Vimalakirti in the way he addresses everybody and uh, in the way that he's... Uh, He's not worried about consequences. He's not worried about ranks or about positions or about names. He messes with everybody and everything. Not just to mess with everybody. He messes with everybody for the sake of awakening, for the sake of cutting through whatever it is that well, they or whatever it is that we are stuck with. Really, it's not about these guys. It's about us. Or well, it is about this guys as us. Also, upaya, skillful means, uh, liberative technique. Um, knowing to use the right thing at the right time based on the need of the moment. Uh, with, with an idea of awakening, not with an idea of gain and loss. So, upaya, very important. Right. It's also relevant to us as non-monastics because, or householders, because Vimalakirti was a layman, a lay practitioner, non-ordained practitioner, right? Which, ordained or not, some of us are ordained, some of us are not, all of us are non-monastics. What's important in that is that we don't get caught up in being ordained or not being ordained, and we can see that being ordained is upaya. Not more than that. It's just another skillful way to help each other to awaken to the source. Right? So this way we're not getting caught up in wearing robes, or not wearing robes for that matter. So, um, <clears throat> also, uh, this is... Uh, a sutra that is a bit unusual, that is focused on or centered around Vimalakirti and not on the Buddha, although the Buddha is mentioned at the beginning at the end, 
uh, it is primarily about how the Buddha's teachings manifest through a lay person, everyday life. So, another thing to, to look at. So, this sutra was probably written in the early years of Mahayana school, which was developed in India sometime in the beginning of the Common Era. Translated to, six, to Chinese six times. Uh, the most influential translation was done by Kumalajiva during the 5th century. And this book that we're using, Watson's book, is the English translation of that version. Something to keep in mind. Vimalakirti is the, the focal point of this. And Buddha occupies the secondary role of the sutra. It was also called the doctrine of the emancipation beyond comprehension. Again, teachings outside words and scriptures. And again and again, we see the, the correlation, the, the, the similarities between Zen teachings as we know them and this sutra. And this version consists of 14 chapters, beginning with a scene from Ambla Gardens in the city of Vaishali in northern India, and opens with Shakyamuni Buddha expounding the teachings to many of his followers. Many followers, some humans, some gods, demigods, some half-humans, some non-humans. In other words, it's another way to show, to point at the teaching that goes beyond concepts, goes beyond what we know to be true or real or what we think is not. Right? So there are no borders, no limitations, no logic, too. That's the first chapter. Second chapter introduces Vimalakirti, who decides or decided to manifest as a sick person for the sake of expanding the teachings. Upaya. This is one among many, uh, you can call them miracles or magical expressions in this sutra. And there are many of these here. So then the Buddha found out about Abhimakita's sickness. He wanted to send somebody to go visit him, as it was common, and it is common still, uh, within Sanghas. And then he goes through each one of his disciples, one by one, those who were present, those who are primary in the sutra, and he asked them to go visit. And then each one of them comes up with reasons why they are not capable. They're not up to par, up to snuff with his the level of his realization. They're afraid of him, basically. Right? Which is, uh, again, many things we can relate to in this sutra. This is one of them. Right? You know, this, this feeling of trepidations about meeting someone, about greeting someone, about confronting. How do we do that? So he goes through them one by one. Each one of them declines and also comes up with reasons why they decline and the reason has to do with the reason have to do with a previous meeting or encounter with Vimalakirti in which they were defeated quote unquote right so like looked at like a dharma uh, encounter as we're going to have next week uh, with Taishin and then in that encounter they were defeated flattened basically so 
And, and those are, uh, we have to remember, those are not novices. Those are people who are very devout practitioners, uh, very deeply realized at the time. So those are the people that he confronted and those are the people from, with which he had Dharma encounter and was able to transcend or see through their level of understanding. Which is another important thing for us in our practice is to not get caught up in anything we think we know at any given time, whatever level, whatever depth we think we have reached. Drop it, move beyond it, and then beyond and beyond and beyond. So that's another thing we have to see in this sutra. So eventually the Buddha uh, gets to Manjushri, Manjushri on the lion, the depiction of wisdom. And Manjushri agrees to go, but he agrees to go with saying that although he may not be up to snuff as well, right, he's still not at that level. Still, he's gone. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, the Shuso, uh, the, the, if you remember the speech of the Shuso at the beginning, it's somewhat scripted, but you know, the point of it is um, I was asked by my teacher to do it, and although I'm not really, I don't feel up for it, I have to do it in accord with the instructions of my teacher. So that's how he goes to meet Vimalakirti. Uh, you could say he's armed by or with the Buddha's understanding and at the same time knowing that knowing his own limitations at that time or the limitations of his understanding. So, so then uh, the text shifts to Vimalakirti's uh, sick room and then from that point on it focuses on dialogue between Manjushri and Vimalakirti and also accompanied him, accompanying him uh, are many 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 all kinds of people who thought that this would be a great way to uh, watch the Dharma being revolved right great way of understanding great way of deepening their, their understanding so then they all go and they all somehow fit in a very very tiny small group another one of the miracles in the sutra so and then there's a last uh, chapter which comes back to the Buddha, comes back kind of full circle. It ties it all together. So this is just kind of like an overview of what we're going to, to study. So I want to, and I asked you to look at, uh, at the introduction, and I want to go over that because it's very important to have a background. It actually says here that uh, in order to fully understand the events narrated in this sutra, particularly those related, relating to the monk-disciple of the Buddha, we must briefly survey the early history of Buddhist religion, of Buddhist, or development of Buddhism. So it is important. The other thing is important here also that uh, uh, the Buddha goes through two different groups of his disciples uh, present at that time. The first one are the Alhats, which we're going to get into, and, then, and the second group are the Bodhisattva. Uh, okay, I'm looking at page, page four. 
in the introduction. So I'm going to read a little bit of that because it's important to, uh, to so we're all on the same page with our understanding. So he says, Buddhism took over from earlier Indian thought the concept of karma, the belief that the deeds done in present or past existence will determine the circumstances into which one will be reborn in the future. According to the Indian view at that time, living beings pass through an endless cycle of death and rebirth, and the ill effects of the evil action in one lifetime may not become evident until some later existence, but they will they will manifest eventually, and it's basically inevitable, right? Because of karma, because of the way it works. The Buddha's Eightfold Path, as we have uh, we have seen, well, we know we have talked about the Eightfold Path. It's actually earlier in that uh, page before that. Um, so, offer a prescription from freeing oneself from ignorance and evil advancing one's level of spiritual attainment and perhaps even escaping the cycle of birth and death entirely. But in order to pursue that path with appropriate zeal and concentration, it was thought, right, it was thought all but imperative that one live secular or household life and become a member of the Buddhist order, which consisted of both monks and nuns. There. Right? Free from family entanglements and mundane concerns, one should devote oneself to a life of poverty, celibacy, and religious study and discipline, supported by the arms of the lay community. Lay believers should acquire religious merit by assisting the order. So by giving them food when they go in the morning rounds, that's how they advance. Observing appropriate rules of all moral conduct and carrying out devotional practices, but it was thought that they would have to wait until some future existence when they too could become members of the order before they could hope to gain full release from the bonds of suffering. So does that make sense? Uh, right? Does that, right? We, some of us know that. But it's important to understand that at that time, well, Buddhism in a way grew in a time of certain way of thinking. Right? And that was the common way of thinking. So we may go back and look at Buddhism and maybe find faults in the way that it was taught, uh, or maybe even the way that the Buddha uh, laid it out. In the beginning, he did not allow women practitioners in. And of course, that raises an eyebrow, right, to say the least. But we have to understand that in, in context of the time that Buddhism was developed. So he did not just, although he may have seen through, he still was living within those times. So we have come a long way. We still have a long way. We have come a long way since then when it comes to uh, uh, not separating. Still have a long way to, to go and a lot of work to do. So in early Buddhism, the ultimate goal of religious striving was to reach the state of alhat or a worthy or saint one who has overcome desire passed beyond samsara right, the, the world of suffering and cyclical birth and death and enter nirvana but as the monastic community labored in the centuries following the buddha's demise to systemize his teaching and clarify points upon which perhaps intentionally his 
pronouncements had been vague, a number of doctrinal problems arose. So that created problems later on, right? And that's the development of the Mahayana. Just what were the characteristics of an Ahad, of a Buddha, or a state of Nirvana, right? So looking at that, trying to understand what does that mean? What is the exact nature of the Dharmas, right? the mirrored objects of phenomena that make up the world as we know it through our senses? If, as the Buddha thought, there is no such thing as individual self or ego, then what is it that recipients, what is the recipients of karmic retribution? In other words, who is suffering for past actions? So the members of the order, in their efforts to settle questions such as these, became increasingly occupied with codifications of the tenets and doctrinal issues, and the religious bodies split up into a number of sects of schools that differed in matters of interpretation of the practice, as it always happens after the whoever comes up with it dies. So these tenets and practices of early Buddhism that I have been describing here are often referred to as Hinayana or the lesser vehicle. Right? So it seems like a derogatory term applied to, applied to them by a rival group within the religious that labeled itself as Mahayana or the greater vehicle and represented its doctrines as superior to the ones before that, to the original version of Buddhism. So, uh, just to stop here for a few minutes, what's important to see here is that, or actually what's most important, that we don't get caught up in what we may consider or read as small vehicle or the larger vehicle. And although the sutra may seem as a kind of a propaganda against and for, right? Um, as if ridiculing something and then belittling it and maybe raising something else as better. It's very important to see that Arhat, Arhat means person who devoted their lives to uh, lifetime after lifetime, got to a point of being able to devote their lives to practice, right? to let go of everything else and just focus on practice, and attain realization. And then with that, kind of, well, they help everybody else. That's the premise of it, right? But it's not exactly like that. Because, and then in relation to that, all side by side, we can see a Bodhisattva, who is, the, in a way, the, the point of the Mahayana teaching, that a Bodhisattva is the one who waits or comes back to help others or waits until entering Nirvana because there is, no, uh, and there is no realization unless everybody else is on board. Or, another way to see that, realization includes everybody else. So, since realization is about realizing that everything is one, well, then how can others not be included? How can I, in a way, forget everybody else? If I call it realization of all one, it won't make sense. Now, we could see arhathood as a stage. It's an essential stage. We have to. But then we have to also step forward. We have to step forward from hundred foot pole, as we say, right? So we don't get stuck. So we get it, we understand something, something is opening up to us, and we forget about it, we move on. So 
it's all essential. It's all important. We cannot say that one is better than the other or one is superior than the other. Because that again, even that would be the wrong understanding. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so a few minutes, I want to see where we're at and if I completely lost you or we're on board together. So let's open it up for a few minutes and then we keep going. Actually, Sidiyoko shared something uh, about that yesterday, an article that she found about exactly that, that the realization, when we realize what these two uh, aspects mean, we realize that they're not separated, basically. So then we don't get caught up in being the ones who belong to the better sect, ridiculing the ones who belong to the other sect. Actually, the name has changed later on to Theravada, which actually means the school of the elders. Just to, to make sure that we don't use terms that may seem derogatory. Okay? But we can't deny that the name was there, so we cannot just delete it. Right? But we have to understand that, uh, in a way, you know, what we, what we, what's called the lesser vehicle, or the, the small vehicle, is stage, a part of practice, an inevitable part of practice, which we cannot skip, which includes what we call the greater vehicle. You're not sure? <laughs> okay, so anything, any, any, you speak so I can drink some tea. So is the what Arhat Bodhisattva, is it a, a question of perspective, of different perspective? Um, because it, it would appear the practice is very similar, except the, the focus of the practice seems to be one is, is inward and one is outward. Well, but here's the thing about that that we have to understand, which Vinokete cuts through. The notion of, in order for me to, in order for us to realize, we have to, first of all, go through lifetime after lifetime of perfection, right? And eventually, get to a point that we are able to leave everything behind. Okay, so there's that. That's a prerequisite, right? And then, from that point on, leave everything behind, have no family ties, have no home, and venture into that. Right? Which also, uh, we know that the Buddha went through asceticism, right? That was one of the things he practiced. Asceticism meant that. He hung out with people who left home. In, in order to, uh, to um, get on spiritual quest. There, is, there was no spiritual quest, or, or full spiritual quest, unless we do that. Now, obviously, we don't see it that way. Right? Because if we see it that way, then we're all doomed. We have, most of us, families. Right? You know, we have things to take care of. We have a job. Day-to-day -day activities, responsibilities. What about that? So then, that's what we have to look at, and this is one of the things that this sutra brings up so well, right? You know, because he goes to all of them, he goes to each one of them, and he just basically takes the rug under their feet. You're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck. And here's how you're stuck. Right? So, you say two concepts, this is what you said, right? You know, concept, right. So, yes, th those are two concepts, but the practice is not conceptual. 
So if we stay on the level of concept, we can get caught up, and we do get caught up in either this or that, right? So then I'm gonna leave everything behind, and uh, and the Buddha did, right? And he left his home in order to, to realize himself. He left everything. So we can say, well, he left everything, so maybe I should do the same. But that's not what the teachings, Zen teaching is, is, is teaching. Not that it's not there. I mean, there is such thing as monastics and there are monasteries. But then there are many centers like this. Right? So are we secondary? <laughs> we can see it that way, right? We are kind of all, we are secondary, because that's all we can do. We have obligations and, you know, we can only get together a couple times a week. Go ahead. That's, um, I see what you should say is <clears throat> the beauty of, uh, of Vimalakirti being the main character of this is that he is a big person. Yeah. So he is actually, um, you know, dealing with, I mean, he's also a wealthy person. He's dealing with managing wealth and creating things and whatever and not getting stuck with it. Yeah. Uh, which is a very unusual way of, of seeing a person not being stuck. I mean, typically, a wealthy person will be kind of, in our minds, more stuck in positions and whatnot. And, and so it's interesting how, how that is expressed. So my question with this yeah. versus the Mahayana versus the Hainan, yeah. um, I think, you know, the Mahayana is like a kind of a completeness of the circle of, okay, what, what are the consequences of what we're doing? I mean, is, is is this really for everybody if we just assume that they need to let go of things? And I think, you know, it was like an expansion of the understanding of what the practical, uh, the practicalities of it, and then how that also fits in the non-duality of things, which was already a teaching there, but it wasn't like interpreted that way at the beginning. That's what it seems to me, but I don't know if I'm expressing it right. Well, okay, so, so yes, look at uh, what we call uh, pure and what we call unpure, right? So, unstained glory is his name. Unstained glory. What does that mean, unstained glory? Unstained purity. And that, that takes what we see as two and brings them to, as one. It's unstained, not because he cleaned it up and he keeps cleaning it up every day in the morning. He gets up and he cleans it up, so it remains. It is saying it is unstained. You can't stain it. You cannot defile it. That, that's interesting because that, that goes back to to the mirror and right. six pre Yeah, definitely it goes back to that. Absolutely. You know, right. it's like and, and, the, and the difference between the six pre right. and, and, and Mio, um, I forgot the name of the other guy from the north. Yeah. Um, you know, the difference of interpretation of, okay, you need to clean this every day, which is more like a Hanayana maybe way of thinking. And then these guys like, no, you don't need to because they Right, Monk Mio, he, he actually, right, he wrote the first verse, and the first verse had to do with maintaining the purity, right? Working on maintaining the purity. Because if I don't work on it, it becomes stained, right? So, so it means, and it's very kind of pompous way of life. It's up to me to keep it right. If I don't do it, it's gonna, right? It's gonna so as if we have that power, right? <laughs> to, to either, you know, keep it clean or make it dirty, right? You know, it's just, yeah. But it falls into the way we think about ourselves, right? Mm. I'm the one who can do that. I have those abilities. Or I That's don't really have cool. those abilities. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, it, it's also, I think it really highlights the, the focus of the Ango being on right effort of when we have these discussions of purity and non-purity, kind of the creation of enlightenment being this 
a, a privileged concept of only certain people are privileged enough to attain such ideals and, and lay people, mostly people not dedicating themselves to this purity are, yeah. cannot perceive it and that when you kind of with the right effort I, I think when you start leaning way too hard into the discipline aspect of it of I'm going to give up everything I'm going all in on this one thing there is this kind of effort to really define yourself in opposition to people that you feel are not. And then you're wasting a lot of effort. Absolutely, and, and, and it's a good point. The irony of it is, is that in that effort to create purity, you're clinging on to a concept of what that is and, and defending it. Uh, it it's, what I liked about this is, well, you know, they, they're all afraid of um, Kurdi To a certain extent, I think a lot of that is because it, you know, challenged the power dynamic that they yeah. kind of created for themselves yep. and really yeah. held them to a different standard that they weren't used to having uh, been confronted on. So they don't want to uh, confront that again. <laughs> and I, I thought that was interesting the way it kind of just explodes it over. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, right effort is, is very closely related to that, right? Because we, right effort on maintaining it pure. Right, you know, there's a, there is a lot of wasted effort if we think that it is dependent on that, right? And also there is uh, the the fear. Well, what if I can't? Yeah. Or if I think I did purify, what if I won't be able to maintain it pure? Yeah. Right, and that falls into am I here or am I here? Right. So if I think I'm in the purity side, then I'm worried about yeah. If I think I'm there, I want to get back to that. Yeah. A lot of wasted effort. And what the other thing about that is when we look at, um, when we study the historical aspects of, of our practice, we have to bring it to this. We have to study it from here and not from there in a way of how is it applied and how does it relate? Well, how is it relevant? Rather than say, well, that was wrong. That was, that did not make sense or whatever. Yeah, but what, what, what is it pointing at? Right? I mean, we are in a way bound by by culture, by tradition. In a way, I mean, well, we all we have those conditionings, right? And we live here. We live within a, a culture. So how do we awaken in that culture through that culture, using the the, the teachings, basically? Hmm? Yeah. Did everyone see the tricycle article? No. No, no. That was. Uh, Exclusive. <laughs> no, we can um, share it actually. We can share it with everybody. Right, yeah. Um, it was Theravada and Minya and Arhat and Bodhisattva. But then there's also a third distinction compassion and wisdom, mm -hmm. which um, I thought made, for me, the article more meaty. Mahayana um, tends to claim for itself compassion as its root and um, blames Tabat as being a wisdom tradition, and it's interesting that their knowledge purity um, uh, defeats everybody on wisdom. Right? He's defeating the Tabatans on the, their own turf and moving to the, uh, the new turf, which is going to be the, the mm -hmm. compassion. Um, and in the article, the, the person who's had extensive experience in both traditions came to the conclusion that. Um, each of them, it's kind of like a yin-yang figure, that at the center of each one is the other one, mm -hmm. so that if you're involved in the wisdom tradition, 
compassion arises, and if you're involved in the compassion tradition, the wisdom arises. And um, he thought that to me was the, the biggest. Um, you know, uh, often we, you know we say that there's no wisdom without compassion. There's no compassion without wisdom. They're not dual in essence. Right. Exactly. They cannot and be that's dual. What the article was. Right. Because if we realize all one, well, obviously compassion is not even uh, it's not even in question. I mean, you know, right? All one is all one. So, and if there is no other realization, then you know, on the same page. Right? You know, there is no wisdom without compassion. And vice versa. Right. Because they're non-dual, essentially. And, and Zen goes to the heart of that. Because it's not, I mean, yes, we can get caught up, and we do get caught up, but Zen teachings are not caught up. And that's another thing, to, another distinction to, to uh, look at. The fact that we get caught up using the teachings doesn't make the teachings wrong or stained or anything else, right? It's just, it's just we have to look at ourselves. So anyway, we're gonna, anything else? We keep moving? Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna go to page nine, uh, the doctrine of non-dualism. says the Vimalakirti's criticism of Hinayana and his own expositions of the Dharma center around the concept of emptiness or non-dualism, a key tenet of in Mahayana thought, like much of uh, much in Mahayana, it represents an ex extension and elaboration of ideas already present in early Buddhism. So the deepening, maybe, right? We see it that way, or going further, or not getting stuck. Uh, the Buddha taught that all things in the phenomenal world are conditioned in nature, brought into being and governed by causes and conditions. They are thus in a state of constant flux and are destined to change and pass away. They may therefore be designated as empty or empty of separate existence, as we say, or void, because they lack any inherent characteristics by which they can be described uh, changing as they do from instant to instant. At best, they can be uh, delineated by what they are not, not permanent, not well, we chant that, right? No eye, ear, nose, tongue, right? We chant this, no, 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 no. And that negation is total affirmation, right? We can see what it's not. I am not what I think. Now we begin from there. Because if we don't get to that, there's no beginning. There's no exploration. Because I know. Right? So if no, 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 okay, well, now I have something to work with. So no fixed nature, no fixed form. All right. Uh, anything else about that quickly? Because I want to move on to chapter one, which I'm actually going to use. Okay. Sorry. Chapter your session. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting how not only is he a lay person and he has wealth and everything, as was going to say, just the fact that he goes, he actually physically goes to pubs and he goes to brothels and he goes to these different places in such a clean way, you know. Um, yeah, his expressions everything are, is, yeah. We're gonna get to that in, in the chapter that introduces Vimalakirti, but uh, yeah, um, again, he has no hindrances. His expression is expression of no hindrances. There are no barriers. 
So, uh, now chapter one, Buddha lands. Also the purification of the Buddha field. So this chapter goes over uh, many kinds of beings that gathered together to listen to the Buddha's uh, sermon. Um, all kinds of existences and non-existences and half-existences or whatever you call it. Uh, but the, the title of this, you know, the Buddha field. What is the Buddha field? Where is the Buddha field? What is, you know, we chant in the verse of the robe, you know, vast is the robe of liberation. That is a reference to the Buddha field. It's vast. It is, yeah, it is unhindered. So where is the, just so again, so we, are, we understand what we're looking at, where is the Buddha field? Yeah. Here. Here. Right. Which means what? Sip tea. Right. You drink tea. But it means in terms of being there for others, in terms of um, compassionate actions. What does that mean? Okay, it's good. It means everything is here. It means everybody's included, right? It means I have to pay attention, right? Because if it's happening now, it's not going to happen later, right? There is no such a thing. It means I, I cannot wait. I should not wait. Right? It brings it home. Every moment it brings it home. This is the Buddha field. Bodhisattva does the work right where they are. Or Bodhisattva in training, or you can call it that way. But that's where the Buddha field is. Whatever we do, whoever we live, however we feel, whatever we think, that's it. So, so as another way to see all these strange beings, right? I think we experience them in our heads, right? All kinds of uh, gods and demigods and uh, uh, half-humans and... <laughs> So sometimes we see ourselves this way, but it's important to understand that it's, it includes everything. The madness that we often experience too. Okay, so it's all there. And uh, vast is the robe of liberation, right? It's a, a formless field of benefaction. You know, the, I looked it up, you know, the bene, good, right? From Latin and, and facere is doing, to do good. A formless field of doing good. And again, you know, this is it, right? This is the Buddha field. This is the formless. It's formless because it's not limited to the form I am or the form I am interacting with or in or within, right? It's formless. So what we chant includes everything, right? But we have to see it. And, you know, even with that, I think that the more we, the deeper we go, the more we see in just few words, right? We look at the, the verse of the road. Few words contain so much, point at so much. So, all right, so it begins by, this is what I've heard. You know, Ananda was the one who, he was the, the primary listener, the cousin, right? The Buddha's cousin. What? He memorized everything. Yeah, he had a phenomenal memory, uh, and because uh, they could not do what we do, 
and record. And uh, so he was the recorder. So that was his brilliancy and actually one of his special powers. So he's the one who heard. So at one time the Buddha was in Andhra Gardens in the city of Vaishali, accompanied by a multitude of leading monks numbering 8,000. There was also 32,000 bodhisattvas, all known to the assembly, person who had carried out all the basic practices of great wisdom, sustained by the might and supernatural powers of the Buddha. They accepted and upheld the correct law, the Dharma, in order to guard the citadel of the Dharma. They knew how to roar the lion's roar. You're going to have to know how to do that next week. Because <laughs> right? he's the Benji for our, yeah, okay, Shuso. So they all knew how to uh, roar the lion's roar. <clears throat> and their fame uh, resounded in the ten directions. Without waiting to be asked, they befriended others and brought them comfort. They ensured the continuous and prosperity of the three treasures, making certain that these never expire. They conquered and subdued the ill will of the devils and curbed the non-Buddhist doctrines. All were spotless and pure, having long, long ago rid themselves of snares and abstractions. Their minds constantly resided in a state of unhindered emancipation. That's the danger, isn't it? Resided. Dwelling nowhere. So yes, we can reside in this too. Their mindless, the mindfulness, meditation, uh, retention of the teachings, and eloquence never faltered. And of almsgiving, keeping off the precepts, forbearance, perseverance, meditation, wisdom, and the power to employ expedient means, upaya. There was not one they were deficient in. Sounds good. They had learned to accept the fact that there is nothing to be grasped at, no view of phenomena to be entertained. They knew how to respond compliantly to others and to turn the unregressing will of the law, the Dharma, right? To turn, to revolve the Dharma, as we, as we call it. Experts in comprehending the characteristics of phenomena, able to understand the capabilities of living beings, they towered over the others, of the great assembly and had learned to be fearful of nothing. So go on and on about that. So you probably read that. It says they, they had plummeted, plummeted the depth of dependent origination and cut off all erroneous views, no longer entertaining the concepts of either being or non-being. And I'm going down, unifying all appearances, causing the multiplicity to appear as one, and creating one giant canopy to give shade to all. Page 18. Yes, thank you. That will be your job, to keep up with that. So, um, so they all, in, this, in this, uh, this, little, this chapter, they all brought something, right? So they brought uh, parasols, like jeweled parasols, right? So like an umbrella. Right? And, and then they joined all this to create one giant parasol, one giant umbrella to cover everything, to include everything. Right? So now, again, even with that, we have to know how to read that and not to get caught up in the symbol itself, but to look at what it is pointing at. 
right? It is, it is basically another way to say all is one, one is all, everything is included. Now I return to oneness. Now I turn to oneness. Nothing is outside of that. A huge canopy within everything is allowed to coexist. Or can coexist. So, so they all came together and asked the Buddha to explain how can a bodhisattva purify the Buddha field? In other words, how, can, how do we bring the light of pure wisdom to the mess and darkness of our everyday life. So even these people, practitioners, who were incredible at what they were doing, they wanted to know how to bring the purity to the mess, how to purify, to maintain purity, maybe. So, how do we bring wisdom into ignorance? The light of wisdom into ignorance. And the Buddha said, it is by inducing the various living beings to enter into the Buddha wisdom. It is by inducing the various living beings to develop the capacity for bodhisattva practices in such and such land that they acquire their Buddha land. So it is by pointing to others that it is where they're at that they need to practice. It is with what they're with that they need to practice. So it's, it's by turning the attention away from the conceptual idea of practice to the tangible. Wherever we are, whatever we do, turn to that, appreciate that, open up to that. Right? This is by paying attention, first and foremost. So then um, he gives an analogy. He says, suppose a man prospers Oh, sorry, uh, pros proposes to build a mansion on a plot of land, open land, right? So somebody wants to build something huge and beautiful and magnificent on an open land, right? He may do so as he wishes, without hindrance. But if he tries to build it in the empty air, he will never be successful, right? And this is what we do. We, we see emptiness. Right? We conceptualize emptiness, and then what can we do with that? Where do we go with that? How can we even... Yeah, what do we do with that? Right? So he said it is the same with the bodhisattvas. It is because they wish to help others to achieve success that they take their own vow to acquire Buddha lands. Their vow to acquire Buddha lands is not founded on emptiness. So... Let's spend a few minutes just to look at that. You know, their vow to acquire the Buddha lands, it doesn't happen on conceptual idea of emptiness. Go ahead. Questions, thoughts, concerns? What does it mean? Yeah, what struck you while you were reading, right? What? What struck you while you were reading? Yeah, what struck you? Right. You can begin. You're not struck. <laughs> I was struck by many things. <laughs> uh. See what it means to me has to do with what is about of returning to the land to actually kind of free others and participate in what's going on. Because I mean, if you do it all in this nowhere, um, there's nothing to do there. It's like 
it kind of lost into kind of portion of, of what the right understanding is. And so it seems to me like it has to do with that, because it's about bow of the four bows of kind of this is for everybody bringing it back. And so for everybody needs to happen in the form without losing formless. This is the pure land, it's up to us to make it so. We chant it. You know why we chant it? Because it's not what we want to hear. We come to practice because we don't want to hear that. Because we think that practice will, you know, get rid of stuff, right? Take care of things. Or bring us somewhere else. Right. Just, yeah, I want to free myself from all that. And the practice says, or he says, you turn towards everything you want to free yourself from. That's the Buddha field. That's the stuff. It's most tangible. What he's saying, you don't build it on, an, on a conceptual idea of what the, what the practice is. You don't build it on midair. You build it with and on whatever it is you're trying to escape. So it's opposite of what we want to hear. And that's why he's telling him that, because he knows that that's where they're at. They all hold on to, them, we hold on to an idea of purity. Right? Wanting to hold on to that. Dwelling in purity. And no, no, get rid of that. You want to practice? Look at, look at what's going on around you. It's most tangible. So the whole, the whole thing is basically, it has to do with, you have to enlighten yourself, but at the same time you have to come down the 104. Well, you have to and get to the 104 before you come down. <laughs> That's the whole thing actually about all this. You guys are doing this, but you have to do it more, and you have to be down in the mud. Right? I think there was a one point too that the devil came to offer. Where's the veins? Are they on, by the way? The computer is yeah, still on. Screen save. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. But they can see us. I believe so. Okay. I mean, so they come like the green. Okay, go ahead. Remind me, I think the. But raise the, the volume. The, the, the devil came with a hundred maids to try to offer them. And yeah. Don't jump the gun, we'll get there. We're okay. jumping the gun. But it's a whole thing about our whole thing, but we gotta do it step by step. <laughs> we don't want to jump the gun. But uh, it is important to understand that what he's referring to here, right? Because it gets to that. Right? That's how we, we kind of unpack it together. But this is the pure land, it's up to us to make it so, right? So yes, the work is it's not in the, the what, it's in the how. How you meet the mess. Not, I don't want that. I want something else. I reject, if I reject this, I reject that. If I reject what I don't want, I reject what I want, essentially. I want purity, but. It is purity. Yes, but it doesn't look like that. That's, it doesn't smell like that, it doesn't feel like that. Yes. So. It's built on being more present. You're asking or are you saying? I'm saying, and you can say yes or no. <laughs> well, actually, I, don't, I want you to say, not to ask. Well, it seems like it's built on being, we try to escape yes. in subtle ways. Yes. Or not so subtle. <laughs> yes. uh, but the vow is built on 
when we are able to be more present, completely present. Right, Not to pay in attention. Not a particular state of mind. Uh, or, or even even in the midst of being in a particular state of mind. Uh, right? Because that's another thing. You know, if I'm in a particular state of mind, as you said, well, then I'm going to wait until this state of mind subsides before I pay attention. Because what he's saying is don't wait. He's saying because it's happening right now within where you're at. What, are you, what else are you waiting for? But the upaya comes in with being completely present. What do we pay attention to? Right. So then because that brings it to the diversity life. of possibility. Yes, and then for example, uh, to the saying to assume the shape according to the need. You know, as we were talking about before, to assume the shape according right. So to be able to meet circumstances and conditions openly rather than with an idea of, this is not it. That is, this is defiled, for example, right? That's defiled. That's not my kind of practice. I practice the purity over there. So, well, I'm gonna turn away from the defilement or from somebody who I perceive as defiled or, or, or unpure or wrong with some political ideas. <laughs> I mean, right, that's another way, you know, they are defiled by having the wrong idea of, you know, what this country should be in, or what direction we should go as a country. They are defiled, right? I mean, that's, yeah, we understand. And then that, that's where it gets difficult, right? Because, well, it's not there yet. We're going to work on it and we arrive at the pure land. But it is saying... This is it. Right? <clears throat> like it or not, this is it. So, uh, would you like to ask if they want to add something to the conversation online? Just touch the tab, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you guys want to add something or to ask something? Okay, and Joe? Okay, yeah? Okay, if you want to say something, then just unmute yourself and join in, okay? Okay. But you can hear us well, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to hear some of the other people speaking, but um, I'm That's you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the others, that that's why they have to raise the volume. That's what the volume is. One of the others. <laughs> You're so quick to saying that I know others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that. Okay, so, uh, all right, we keep going. So from there it goes into the four immeasurables, right? And I want to go through that because this is very important that we all, this is one of the things that, that are important in study, that we all kind of get on the same page with some fundamentals of, of Buddhist studies. So the four immeasurables, right? So it outlines uh, and the six paramitas, right? So I'll start with the paramitas. The dana paramita, because what he's saying is, maybe I'll read that. He's saying that uh, the six tasks of, well, the six tasks of the elephant, right? So I don't know if you guys know that, but Samantha Bada rides on an elephant that has six tasks. Each one of them is one of those, right? So each one refers to one of those, one of the paramitas. 
Okay. So what he's saying is that a mind devoted to those is a mind that functions within the pure land or matches the purity of the pure land. Page 27. Yeah. So, Dhamma uh, the perfection of wisdom. Sila Paramita, perfection of morality through upholding precepts. Santi Paramita, perfection of patience, forbearance. Vidya Paramita, perfection of energy, courage as well. Jnana Paramita, perfection of uh, meditation. And Prajna Paramita, perfection of wisdom. Right? So, Dana, Sila, Santi, Vidya, Jnana, and Prajna. Okay? And then he goes into describing the, the four immeasurables, um, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So if you want to say something about that, that's the time. Otherwise, we keep going. We're good? Okay. All right. So then uh, it goes on to, uh, we talk about expedient means, all the pure land of the Bodhisattva. When he attains Buddhahood, beings who can employ all manner of expedient means with complete freedom will be born in his country. So, what do you make of that? Yes? You skipped like four levels of many people? I did skip. I think you have a slightly different translation, too. I am skipping a little bit. I, told, I, just, okay, I, I just, promise I'm to skip. I'm curious as to what the four levels, do you know, do you know what they are? He doesn't here. No, but I'll get back to you. Okay. It was, it was a term I haven't heard before. Yeah, no, I, I have it. I have just, uh, it's a different book, so I'll get back to you about it. But uh, yeah, no, I skip a little bit. Actually, I'm going to keep skipping just so we can actually get through something <laughs> with that. But yes, so the point is that expedient means are the pure land of the Bodhisattva. Upaya is the pure land. What's that? is how you meet, how you meet the reality of sin. We were discussing just right now that the pure land is here. So how you meet that at any given moment with the right understanding is about it. So, I mean, if you have the right understanding of coming with the six paramitas forward, then Upaya expresses itself and that's it. Right, so, so what's the... When you look at the pie, when you look at skillful means or, you know, <coughs> assuming the shade based on the need, why is that? Why is he saying that this is the, the pure land? Because that, that's where the action is present at its best. It's the right action, the right effort, with the right understanding. With all, you know, it's basically you're upholding the eightfold path. In that action. What motivates? What is the motivating factor in Upaya in relation to practice? I mean, there's a no, difference there. No here's the no well, here's the difference. You know, you can say, you know, there are uh, skillful means in order to, for example, do what you do at work, right? I mean, you know, you study the brewery, right? And you look at, how can I do it better, right? You can say, well, that's also being more skillful about my craft, right? But that's not the same skillfulness. Okay, so what's the difference in upaya, skillful means in relation to practice, and skillfulness in terms of doing what you do? Well, in the skillful, in the upaya, I think, you know, if there is no gain involved into it. You're not trying to improve anything, you're not trying to gain, 
you're not fearing losses, you're just acting upon what's required. And very tough to do, much easier to say. Uh, but <laughs> that's kind of my understanding of what that means, which is different from, from the skill of when you're trying to improve, I mean, how you make this or how you make whatever you're doing. You, know, like you have like a certain concept of, okay, I'm going to do this. However, you can improve your skill with Upaya too. So there's a kind of combinations, you know, because Upaya can express on how you improve your skill if you're actually not expecting to gain anything about it, you're just doing it for the sake of it. Right, because it comes from, there's no, uh, uh, because there's no doer, it's not, yeah, there's no gain and loss, but there's no gainer and loser, right? And in that, it operates by itself, it operates from equanimity because it doesn't separate, right? It doesn't begin with a separation of, I, you know, yes, there we, I will gain this or I don't want to lose that. Even with purity, even with an idea of purity, I don't want to lose the purity. I want to gain purity and maintain purity, which falls right back into the same mechanism, right? So, so it's important to look at upaya in, in the right way, right? Upaya is... In a way, it's it's how Buddhahood expresses itself, rather than you know moving us towards Buddhahood. It's interesting because you know, every now and then, I feel like I can act based on that, you know, and kind of the, the sensation is that sensation of no trace. Yeah, that's what you get. You get it's like whatever happened, it doesn't have anything else, and you just acted and that's it. And then there is no clinging of what I have done or what I have not done or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean? And it's interesting because it, it does happen that way and it expresses that way. Yeah. And then you know that you're kind of connected to that skillful being at that particular time. And then the fear comes and we grasp. Well, the, yeah, well, then you want that all the time and then it doesn't happen, of course. Because it's also, fear. there is, there is, there is uh, the fear of, if, of, of uh, acting, of uh, functioning in that realm. There's, there's some fear with that, especially at the beginning, because we don't know who we are. I, I agree. We don't know who we are there. Mm -hmm. Because there's no gap. So it is, it is terrifying, and at the same time, we, we feel pulled to or gravitated towards it. Right? It's almost like two opposing forces. One tries to pull you, pull you away, the other one in. Towards Buddhahood. Yeah. Right? And I think we experience that uh, yeah. often, right? You know, whether it's Zazen or everyday practice. <coughs> so. Well, we experience dualism. Right, yeah. All the time. Right? Within and without. Tries to separate. Within and without, right? <coughs> so then, uh, so I want to move into, I don't know what uh, this is kind of a summary. It says, therefore, Dual accumulation, do you know what page it is? Dual accumulation, because the, Bodhis, because the Bodhisattva has an upright mind, he is impelled, he right? is driven to action. Because he has an upright mind, because he is impelled to action, he gains a deeply searching mind. Because he has a deeply searching mind, he will, his will is well controlled, regulated. Because his will is well controlled, he acts 
in accord with the teachings. Because he acts in accord with the teachings, he can transfer merits to others. Because he transfers merits to others, he knows how to employ expedient means, right? Which brings us back to what we just talked about. It comes from there. It's not self-serving, it's all-serving, right? And as all-serving, it is self-serving the one who is moving, but not separated from what he or she is serving, right? And he knows how to employ expedient means. Because he knows how to employ expedient means, he can lead others to enlightenment. Because he leads others to enlightenment, his Buddha land is pure. Because his Buddha land is pure, he's preaching the law or the Dharma is pure. Because he's preaching the Dharma is pure, his wisdom is pure. Because his wisdom is pure, his mind is pure. And because his mind is pure, all the blessings he enjoys will be pure. Page 29. Yeah. Therefore, jewel accumulations, how he refers to them. If the Bodhisattva wishes to acquire pure land, he must purify his mind. When his mind is pure, the Buddha land will be pure. Right? Instead of giving solace to the body, give solace to the mind. When the mind is at peace, the body will be at peace. Right? That's uh, Mumon, sorry, Mumon. One of the commentaries from the yeah, Mumon Khan. Okay, so uh, then uh, Shariputra, right? So then Shariputra, which was the, the, actually Buddha's uh, foremost disciple in the Theravada tradition, right? So he was influenced by the Buddha to, in a way, the Buddha influenced him as a pie. Ask a question so we can keep the teachings going. And I'm going to tell you what to ask. <laughs> Kind of like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, I mean, he, may, he sounds a little uh, kind of like, you know, it doesn't make much sense or whatever, or maybe we think it's a stupid question. But stupid questions are actually great questions because they revolve the Dharma, because they, they show us where we get stuck and then they shed light. So, anyway. At that time, Shariputra, moved by the Buddha's supernatural powers, thought to himself, if the mind of the Bodhisattva is pure, then his Buddha land will be pure. Now that, that now when our world-honored one first determined to become a Bodhisattva, surely has his intentions were pure. Why then is this Buddha land so filled with impurities? Now he just he didn't ask it. I was going to point out he didn't ask. He thought it, but then the Buddha read his mind and answered. Right. So. And again, right, because this is putting purity versus impurity, right? How come, if this is the pure land, well, what about those who vote for whatever, right? What about those we don't like? What about the, the direction that this country is going? What about all that, right? Where's the purity in this? How can this be pure? Right? I mean, this is so easy to connect to. And so easy to bring it to, especially now, especially what transpired yesterday. Right? So, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to make it a political discussion, but the point is that, you know, we, we are triggered. We are triggered, and when we are triggered, we, we, we can look and see that we are triggered by divisions because we have an idea of what's right, what's wrong 
what's pure, what's defiled. And also an idea of where we're at and where we're not in relation to that. So the Buddha, knowing his thoughts, said to him, What do you think? Are the sun and moon impure? Is that why the blind man fails to see them? And Shariputra replied, No, world honored one. That is the fault of the blind man. The sun and moon are not to be blamed. Shariputra, it is the failing of living beings that prevent them from seeing the marvelous purity of the land of the Buddha. There thus come one, the Tathagata, there thus come one is not to blame. Shariputra, this land of mine is pure, but you fail to see it. Now, you fail to see it is us being upside down. Right? Right. That's what he said. That's what he said when he realized. Right? Everybody's got Everybody's endowed with it. Because we're upside down, we don't see it. He's not ridiculing. He's not faulting. He's not saying that we are wrong or anything like that. He's just saying that because we're upside down, we don't see it. Go ahead. It just, it's, that passage in particular was one, I mean, maybe I'm getting hung up on, on phrasing on certain things, but when we talk about bodhisattvas coming back. Yeah, and, and, returning. And returning. Yeah. This passage in particular suggests to me that there is not really a return per se, as much as it's, especially if they haven't had that realization of it, if they're still proposing questions of purity and, and impurity, that they're not returning from a higher place. They just haven't had that realization. Are you talking about, are you talking about the arhats? Are you talk, are arhats, the, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. Right. That's, that's yeah, that's okay. But, uh, but that discussion of it, of seeming like they've achieved the height and they have to return from said height, to help others up there, to me, I look at this kind of a situation and I don't really see it in that kind of a linear uh, kind of escalator-esque uh, so, so kind of thing. I see it more... Is that a question? It, 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 it is a question of interpretation, I guess, would be that I don't fully understand... Um, because it seems like such a fundamental realization that the idea of the arhats being elevated as opposed to along a, a certain point without having realized the, the, the analogy of the, uh, of the blind man not seeing the sun in the moon. Um, so what you're saying is that, that you have a difficulty understanding how can, how can they realize and yet be blind to, to that to everybody else yeah in a way you okay. know, it, it seems like it's I guess it's it's so fundamental that there's no easy way to see it especially when they're at that stage I guess where it's that how do you go from being with the arhats where it's very self withdrawn and, and all of that to then having the realization of the coming back to the the lived world, I guess. But again, you know, we have to see that in context of the time, yeah. right? That's a, that's a also a very important part of it, because you know the, the ascetics, right? The whole ascetics a movement. You know, these people will do all kinds of things in order to, you know, because they thought that that would be the way to realization, right? To emancipation, whether they would hold an arm up for, 
30 years, right? Until it would wither, actually. There's still some people in India that do that. You look online, I think you'll see. But even outside of that, kind of taking it away from the more kind of contextual practices that we're talking there to more of things we do in our everyday right. kind of existence is a very similar uh, play out of this, what's this phrase, uh, mistaking the forest for the trees, I can't, can never remember that, but of getting too hung up on yep. particulars and missing the, the Right, and the experience may be true, right? But then, again, what's important in this for us, for us, not so much for the way it was or for the history, historical concept, yeah. for us is to not get caught up. Mm -hmm. So, and it's easy to get caught up. Right, so also it's not so simple, it's simple but it's not so simple to see, mm. right? That's one, we get caught up, we are conditioned. Mm -hmm. We are conditioned by our culture. They were conditioned by their culture, right? So we can learn that in this, right? So then you look at the way we are living, right? What am I triggered by, you know, what am I conditioned by, mm -hmm. right? You know, what do I think I have uh, learned or realized and can I let it go? And also, is everybody, is everyone included in what I think I realized? Mm -hmm. Or the, is my realization uh, creating another wall, a new kind of wall, yeah. right? So we can be practitioners and still be very, uh, very much into uh, erecting walls isn't, isn't as practitioners. Isn't that part of the dualism that they experience though? I think so. I think this, yeah, we have to see it in that way, right? I mean, they created something out of practice. And it doesn't negate, look, you sit and you sit and you sit and you are transcending. You are deepening. You are connecting. This is, you know, because it's there. So that, that is not, not true. I mean, there is, there are such experience, deep experiences, right? But then one of the problems is it feels so good. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to forget about it. Because it feels amazing, right? But it's like being on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So we have to, the point is for us, again, not so much to judge you know, and yeah. quantify. For us, it's more about, you know, where am I stuck and what am I doing to further the deepening of my understand of this understanding. Mm -hmm. Not even mine, of the understanding. Okay? So uh, that's the being upside down. Anything else? Or we move on. So then the Buddha uh, pressed, that was another one of his ways of, of, of showing, right? You know, he wanted that skillful means. He pressed his toe, he touched the, the ground, his big toe, and immediately the thousand million-fold world was adorned with hundreds and thousands of rare jewels till it resembled jewel adornment, Buddha's jeweled adornment, land of immeasurable blessings, all the members of the great assembly sighed in wonder at what they had never seen before and also that they themselves were seated on a jeweled lotuses the buddha said oh shariputra now do you see the marvelous purity of this buddha land and shariputra replied i indeed i do world honored one something i have never seen before and never even heard of now right oh, oh. so this is something that they actually never experienced before. Like everything was revealed, it's as if the, the curtain has lifted. And then life or reality seemed completely different. Okay. 
So I'm going to move on. It says, my Buddha land has always been, he said to Shariputra, my Buddha land has always been pure like this. But because I wish to save those persons who are lowly and inferior, I make it seem as impure land, full of defilement. That is all. It is like in the case of heavenly beings. All ate their food from the same precious vessel, but the food looks different for each one, depending upon the merits and virtues that each possesses. It is the same in this case, Chariputra. If a person's mind is pure, then he will see the wonderful blessings that adorn this land. Then the Buddha released the supernatural powers and everything returned to his former existence, former, former appearance. What a disappointment, huh? It's like, you know, there it is, gone. Now, this is a very important question, a very important part of the sutra, actually. Because what did he do and what did he change? What did he do in this? Pulled the curtain back. Okay. Pulled the curtain back. Okay, so he, he revealed them. He revealed what was always there. Okay. But they were unable to see because none. What does it sound like? What, do, I, I want, what I want to know is what do you experience? Or what have you experienced that, that can resemble this? This is like a moment of realization, and later it just in a flash it goes away. You know, everything is there. All the food is on the table. You see it. And all of a sudden, it's gone. But it's, it's just a flush. What's the difference? No difference. Well, that's well, us. Contextually. I mean, us. Yeah, there is, we can say it doesn't feel the same, right? Between this and that. Between, as you said, the curtain is lifted and the curtain drops. Then what? But it reminded me, actually, uh, of, uh, reminds me, uh, of uh, last session, well, you were there, right? Remember that uh, Katie was talking about, uh, you know, how he felt before, like at the beginning of session and at the end of session, right? And then I think all of us, you know, we all experienced that, right? You would go to session, right? And it could feel like hell, it could feel like heaven. What's the difference? And it could feel like hell and heaven within an hour, multiple times. Meanwhile, it's the same place. Right? The same eyes, looking, the same ears, hearing, the same body, feeling, right? We go through pain. There is the pain. And yeah, it feels like hell. And then all of a sudden, same pain. The pain doesn't go anywhere, but something happens. Something happens. And that's the, it's not, you know, the miracle is not, that's the secondary. We shouldn't get caught up in that way. We should see this through our own experiences of realizing this world as an incredible place or as a crappy place. I think if things would have gone the other way yesterday <laughs> in the vote, <laughs> maybe we would have feel, felt differently about this world today. Right? Maybe the coffee would have tasted better. Would you agree? Yeah, I Right? We would have a better night's sleep. Wake up with a smile in the morning. There are a lot of things that would make me sleep. Woke up grumpy this morning because, you know, I mean, it's just we think it's justifiable. Here, it's, it's still the same the realization of what changed between that moment yesterday yeah. and the moment after that. Yes. Well, again, we details-wise, we, we look at the details. We look at what? Well, yeah, but one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever, right? We have many reasons to say, of course, I'm going to be grumpy. How can I be not grumpy at this point? 
right? I mean, and then it makes sense, and then we go along, the, you know, go along, go about our business, and, and grumpy, and of course other people join that grumpiness, and and then what? But what he what he's doing here is basically, and yeah, he touches the and that's the thing, he touches the ground with his toe. What does that mean? With his toe. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, with what we don't even, you know, I mean, how often do we actually think about it? I have a toe, this is great, you know, it's like, a, right? My toe is magical. And I'm not kidding, I'm not, it is magical. Because that's the point. The magic of the toe. <laughs> right, it's, it's, and it's, that's what he's trying to, to point at. It's a, this is the pure land. But the it's up to of, you. The magic of everything around you. Right. Yeah. The magic of tying your shoes. I talked about last last year in the younger. The magic of doing what we do and take for granted. Where else is the magic? How, how else can we understand that? That this is the pure land. It's up to us to make it so. How else can we understand non-dualism? If not like that. Right? If it's not dual, it's not dual. If the pure and the defiled are not two, what does that leave us with? That's the important point. Yeah. Is this in contrast to the Buddha touching the ground with his finger? <laughs> this ground is my witness. Now, I think his finger was as powerful as his toe. <laughs> Just imagine what he could do with his whole foot. Yeah, this is right, right. <laughs> right, right. This ground is my witness. Well, but actually, he used that in a way of saying, I don't need anybody's verification because I'm verified by this ground. Because That's, Mara asked him. Yeah. Right, because you remember Mara came by and asked, well, who's going to, yeah, you're here alone. Who's going to you know, say, yes, you did it. You have arrived, you've achieved something. There's nobody here. Right? What good is it? Nobody's going to say, wow, you're amazing. And he touched the ground. Said, well, you know, I don't need a witness. This ground's my witness. But yes, in a way, because, yeah, it's all there. It's all available. Why do I need somebody to come and tell me, yeah, you're correct in your realization? Uh, who? If it's all one, then who's going to come and verify? But the moment you need somebody, then there's a duality. That's the point, right? I mean, if you realize unity, then who, who are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? It brings it back. I mean, this is one thing I love about this sutra, right? It's just, it's very, it's like, it's like watching a theater, right? It goes from one scene to another, and it's just, it's, 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 there's humor and everything. There's a lot going on. But it's not us watching a, a play. It's actually us being in that. Right? Because unless we, unless we understand how to, to read it, then we can think, well, this is nice, but how's that, how is it relevant to my life? And if we don't understand how it's relevant, then we're not, uh, we're not studying correctly. Right? Mm. Anyway, we, we have to move on. Anything else about that? Okay. Uh, so, how he picked up his toe, and everything went back to the way it was, 
and it's kind of disappointment, right? It is a disappointment. And then he says, uh, let's see a second. So 32,000 heavenly and human beings who wished to pursue the path of the voice hearer, understanding that all things are impermanent in nature, cast off the, cast off the dust, remove themselves from defilement, and attain the pure Dharma eye. The 8,000 monks ceasing to accept the phenomenal world put an end to all outflows and gain emancipation of mind. When the Buddha in this way revealed the marvelous purity of the land, the 500 sons of rich men who accompanied dual accumulation, all were able to grasp the truth of birthlessness. And 84,000 persons all set their minds on attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, complete and perfect, uh, unstained enlightenment. Complete and perfect enlightenment. So, we're going to move to, uh, we have time, we have a little more time. Right, left? We have, yeah? like, it's 12. Yeah, yeah we have, 15. yeah, 15, 20 minutes. All right, so, uh, chapter 2. Now, this chapter introduces Bhimalakirti. So, uh, at, the at that time, in the great city of Vaishali, there was a rich man named Vimalakirti, unhindered in his eloquence, able to disport himself with transcendental powers. He commanded full retention of the teachings and had attained the state of fearlessness. He had overcome the torment of the torment and ill will of the devil and entered deeply into the doctrine of the Dharma, proficient in the Paramita of wisdom and a master in employing of expedient means. He had successfully fulfilled his great vow and could clearly discern how the minds of others were tending. And actually that's, uh, I think we sometimes we touch on that then when we study ourselves, we study everything and everybody. When we understand our own difficulties and challenges, we understand everybody else's challenges. Right? So to see into one is to see into all. Right? So moreover, he could distinguish whether their capacities were keen or obtuse, desiring to save others. He employed the excellent expedient of residing in Vaishali. So even his existence, his life, what he was doing, Everything was actually upaya. His life was upaya, and it's a very, it's a very nice way to, to see to see ourselves, to see ourselves as expedient me rather than something static. I am upaya. Right, and it goes back to what the Buddha said. Right, this is the life of a bodhisattva, the life of upaya. And it changes everything because it takes it away from gain and loss, right? Into how can I be of help? How can I do good? How can I do good for others? How can I help others see through what where they're stuck or what they're stuck with and help them free themselves from that? So a life of upaya. Though dressed in the white robes of a layman, he observed all the rules of pure conduct laid down by, for monks. And though he lived at home, he felt no attachment to the threefold world. Now you can see how this goes against the, 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 the thought of that time, that you have to leave it all behind in order to practice this. 
you can't practice that if you are if you have a business if you live at home if you have a family if you have to take care of business or stuff then that, you know, you cannot do that so that's already starting to go against all that so one could see he has a wife he has a wife and children yet he was at all times chest in action obviously he had keen he had keen and household attendant Yet he always delighted in withdrawing from them. Although he wore jewels and finery, his real adornment was the auspicious marks. Although he ate and drank like others, what he truly savored was the joy of meditation. What he truly savored was the joy of meditation. Now this is not uh, that he was not able to enjoy. He was able to enjoy everything, but he saw it for what it is. He saw it as transient. Right? He saw it as transient, so he wasn't attached to that. Right? Actually, uh, if you remember, uh, we studied Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma also talked about that. Right? That, that, that the attachment ends with the delight in something. Right? You can be delighted in something or buy something, and then it ends with the delight. So then it leaves no trace. So it doesn't mean to turn away or to turn against anything. It means to see it for the way it really is, or as it is, not as what we think it is. Empty of separate existence. How can we grasp it if it's empty? So, if he visited gambling parlors, it was solely to bring enlightenment to those there. If he listened to the doctrines of other religions, he did not allow them to impinge on the true faith, right? Which means he was not self-righteous about his own understanding about Buddhism. He was able to be open to others. Although maybe they did not understand what he understood, he still was able to be open to that. Though well-versed in secular writings, his constant delight was in the Buddhist teachings, in the Dharma. Respected by everyone, he was looked on as foremost among those deserving of alms. Embracing and upholding the correct Dharma, he gave guidance to old and young. In a spirit of trust and harmony, he conducted all kinds of business enterprises. But though he reaped worldly profits, he took no delight in this. So, anyway, this what do you think? This sounds to me like this is Zen for daily life, in some, some sense. Because you talk about everybody else, you know, you can still function, you have to do what you have to do, and you have to interact. But, you know, if you do it from the right perspective, or the right view, you will function. And it doesn't mean that you have to, you know. It means negating nothing, rejecting nothing, right? Over. Judging, judging nothing. Right. Judging nothing, right? Dwelling nowhere. Dwelling nowhere, he had a home, right? He had a family, he had a business, he made money. Yeah. But he wasn't the one gaining, right? So, but also the other thing is, you know, the coming and going, you know, he went to brothels, he went to casinos, he went, you know, he hung out with everybody because he wasn't judging, mm -hmm. because he was able to see the, the truth in everybody, whether they saw it or not, whether they obeyed it or not, or 
maybe they moved by they were moved by something else. Still, he was able to see through their actions. Kind of like Jesus, right? Hanging out with everybody. Right? He was actually uh, uh, chastised for that. Right? But Bhima it says that he was like one of the, he was the most respected businessman at the time because he was able, he was very good at it, yet not attached. And it's, it's, Beautiful, right? Because it comes back to our lives. It comes back to, to what's going on. It comes back to the way we are meeting challenges. And it's showing that, you know, this is it. This is the purity. Or also maybe, uh, you know, forget purity or impurity. Appreciate this. Right? Even, even that, even maybe we should drop idea of purity and impurity. And that's also the, the, uh, what he was doing, what the Buddha was doing, the revealing everything and then hiding it. It's never hidden, it's, never, it's always revealed. So, reminds me of I think we're gonna, yeah, go ahead. We're gonna, we're gonna uh, with this, uh, wrap it up in the next few minutes, but go ahead. And I wanna see if there's anything that you wanna say to conclude today's uh, meeting. It, it kind of reminds me of Naizumi, Naizumi's writing and, and teaching mm-hmm. in Appreciate Your Life. A couple of stories that I've heard um, that he told about being too precious, you know. And yeah. yeah, like telling that the man who had to eat at a certain time or had to eat before a certain time, telling him that he was he was being too precious and he should eat when he needs to eat. The thing the things don't don't be so rigid. Rigid. Right, the story, I'll just tell it quickly yeah. because otherwise I don't think everybody heard it. It's, it's, it's a short story about uh, Mazumi driving to, uh, to some kind of a ceremony and there was a, a Theravada monk with them and uh, they eat up to noon and then afternoon they don't eat until the next day. They fast until the next morning. So I think they were driving somewhere, there was no place to stop and it was getting close to noon and the guy was getting very nervous because noon comes and then they're unable to eat after that, right? And then Maizumi turned to him and said, stop being so precious. So what? You eat at one, big deal. Why is that a problem? And it's what Vimalakirti would say. Mm-hmm. What's your problem? Why is that an issue? What's gonna happen if you eat at one? What will be the fire if you eat at one? Right, we get rigid. In the name of purity, we get rigid. In the name of flexibility, we become stuck. So yeah, yeah, it's important. I want to see if, uh, could you touch it again and see if they have anything to say. So the two of you want to say something? We're gonna, we are kind of wrapping it up. Venture, do you want to unmute? We can't hear you. You have to unmute. Um, Go ahead. The question is for us, what is the extra? Right, so in terms of practice, what we need to do is to identify what is extra here. 
But yes, this is, uh, you can see it that way and then work with it. Where is the extra? But in a way, in a way, I mean, in a nutshell, I am the extra. Right? Because if you look at where all the extra comes from, it comes from me. So in the movement, there is no you. In order to find you, you have to stop. So if you think of flow, and you maintain flow, and flow is maintained, maintained, then where can you find yourself? Where do you find yourself? Right, walk with it that way. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Avery? Still there? Okay. okay, so anything else to uh, wrap it up? Two minutes. I'll say something. Um, so one thing that struck me about this passage, um, it's hard to think of somebody who's so spiritual as having so much that he's adorned with all these jewels. Like maybe somebody down the street can't eat and you're wearing all these jewels. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very interesting that it, it pointed it out in this way because I think in, in my own mind that was kind of a duality. Um, but also I'm still questioning kind of how how skillful is that that portion. If if I view this man over here who can't eat as myself, when I say, Oh, let me let me give you my jewel because I'm I'm hungry here. So um, even even if you're not attached to all these things that you have or life that you've made, I think that's um, kind of the point that they're making is you can be rich or poor and is it really that different if you're moving from the central place? Right. Um, but if you are moving from that central place, would you want that access? That's well, not I mean, wanting. well, we could look at, uh, the, you know, in, in contrast to that, you could look at Layman Pang who basically put all his fortune on a boat and sunk it. Right? So, you know, you know, is Lehman Peng more correct than Vimala? But both of them were Lehman. Right? So one put all this uh, stuff on the boat and sunk it. And then the other one used it as Upai. I'm not saying that Lehman Peng used his poverty as Upai. And then Vimala Kirti used his richness as Upai. Does it matter? If it's used as Upai, if it is given, Poverty can be given, and the richness can be given. Do you see? I, I see what it's saying. I don't know I'm still... Um, yeah, it's 100% about the, the place you're moving and how you're, how you're using that wealth for... Yeah, and he was also very giving in his, in, his, in his life. He was also very giving, and he was very helpful, right? So he, he did not profit for himself. He profited and then shared so helped. So, you know, that's, that's one way uh, to, to be, uh, to act as Upaya, to be Upaya, right? He was good at it. So, so in a sense, you know, if you're good at something, why not express yourself in that or with that, right? And then be that as Upaya. Whatever you're good at, he was, he happened to be a good businessman. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the, the entire point of this is that he is expressing himself fully, even better than the Buddhas, Arahats, yes. and Bodhisattvas, and 
pointing out to them their, their mistakes. And also, you know, you talk about poverty. You could be attached to poverty. You could be attached to not having as much as to having. And then in that, it's the same. It doesn't matter, right? You know, I'm the one, you know, who left everything behind. Look at me. Am I not great? You know, I, I gave up everything, right? And then, but, but so when we look at uh, uh, Lim and Pang, we look at Vimalakirti, they both, in a way, live different lives, right? But both of them were not attached to neither poverty nor, nor richness. And that's the important part here. Not, not what it is, but how are you living it? I give up everything, so you should, you should, uh, you know, look up to me and respect me because I gave up everything. Um, I have all this, yet I'm giving and sharing to everyone. Right, could, right. But we could create yourself from nothing and from something. Yes. Right. Depends yeah. on what you're attached to, right? Yeah. Right. It doesn't really matter, right? The point is the mechanism that wants to grasp. And that's what we have to work with. And uh, the, uh, the one that uh, gave up everything, yet yeah, keeps all the uh, enlightenment to himself, yet you have somebody who has everything, yet chooses to bring everybody else along with it through yeah. the enlightenment, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, we have, the, we have, sometimes we just want to say that the ones who give up the most are the ones that should be more... Uh, admired and more enlightened and the ones that have the most uh, material things mm -hmm. like they would not be able to uh, gain enlightenment because they won't be willing to give it up right and so we that we get caught up with that sometimes. Yeah. yeah and that's another duality that we we should uh, in the way we read it we should see you can't share what you don't have and I think uh, you know the point you're making here raises a question of appearances. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he appears this rich man, he's very much putting it forward. How could he hope to reach someone where they're at mm -hmm. uh, on a material level of, you know, why, if I'm impoverished, why should I listen to this rich man kind of coming at me? And in a way, even the, the Buddha does that and puts his toe down. If I, I show, make this world appear impure because I want it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's still the same no matter what so appearances play a role and yet at the same time we're trying to move past appearances well but then you will see how he interacts you know so he deals with everybody he deals with you know those who uh, hold on to poverty or those hold to hold on to having nothing and he goes there too right so again you know don't, you're caught up in this you're caught up in that you're caught up in that right so but he's doing it from a place of freedom mm -hmm. from not being caught up in his own richness on his own fault. Anyway, we're going to wrap it up with that. Yeah. And then, uh, so next time, uh, we are going to uh, begin from Vimalakirti uh, appearing as Sikh, and then uh, go from that to the Buddha uh, working with different people, trying to convince them to go, you know, or ask them to go see him, and each one of them says no, and see how far we get with that. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.